Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie. So grateful to have you back here for a part two of a fun little dive into the work of James Hollis, who is talking to us. And we are going to then be talking to you about how to construct a mature spirituality. So Nathan, I'm going to put you on the spot right now and ask you to review just very briefly what we talked about in uh, the first part of this little mini series. Okay, so we introduced this book called Living an Examined Life by the author James Hollis. And we talked about how the book touches on different ways that we as individuals need to retake personal authority in our lives, areas where we've given our personal authority to other people. And one of those chapters and one of the places where we've given up our personal authority is in our spirituality. So we sort of talked about the difference between spirituality and religion. And then we talked about how religion oftentimes brings with it either a very authoritarian uh, flavor, which involves guilt and fear and fear of punishment, uh, or some religions bring with it a very prosperity flavor like, hey, if you'll just do all the right things, everything will be perfect. But as we go along in life, we realize that much of what we are taught in religion doesn't jive with us as we try to develop our spirituality. And it brings a lot of conflict. And, and, and James Hollis is saying, hey, you don't have to be in conflict because you don't actually have to believe or accept anything that doesn't feel right to you. And to not necessarily eliminate religion, but to distance our spiritual development from the institutions around us. And we talked about how some of the problems that institutional religion can create is that it actually hinders our ability to have spiritual experiences because it sort of puts boxes around things that we are supposed to believe in and, and, and things that we're supposed to, uh, to, to experience it tries to put rules around those experiences and it tries to put images around those experiences and can in a lot of ways be very limiting to our spiritual growth. And so uh, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, um, but now what we're going to talk about is his formulas for breaking free of that and, and how to, in our own spirituality, decide what is true. Since we've now rejected the notion that authoritarian figures have to tell us what's true, how do we decide for ourselves what is right or what feels right? Thank you. That was beautifully said. I think I will just um, add a tiny little bit to the very last thing that you were talking about, because it's a really good jumping off point for what we're going to jump into today. Okay. So we, Nathan was mentioning the difference between, well, he talked about putting our religion that sometimes religion puts spirituality into a box. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that was a really great way to talk about this idea that some that which is the most deeply spiritual is um, is hard to qualify and quantify, and it's supposed to be that way. The deeply spiritual, our indwelling relationship with God and all that relates to God is by default, it needs to be mystery. It needs to be something that we feel, that we experience, that we know deep inside of ourselves, and that cannot be explained and as soon as we start explaining it, the mystery disappears and we sometimes actually lose touch with the divine. And so what Hollis is here to talk to us about is how can we know 
that we are trending towards cultivating a mature spirituality, which is holding on to this beauty of mystery. And that being that, that our, our spirituality is ours. It's not what the church tells us it's supposed to be. It's not what our parents told us we were supposed to believe. It's not a set of rules. It's not a set of guidelines. It's something that is alive and awake in us and it lives within us. Okay. So he is going to, um, I, well, let me just say it this way. He, he talks about how there are five components to a mature spirituality. I'm going to read each one of these five, and then we are going to talk about them. Okay. Number one is this. He says, first, it is the nature of the modern and the postmodern world that like it or not, one now has the responsibility that once was tribal. The flight from this accountability is a flight from oneself and deference to the received authority of others. So the first test of our trial and error process is found in the principle of resonance. Resonance means to resound. When we try on someone else's coat, it may or may not fit, may or may not accord with who we are. And so we readily change coats, but we do not accept someone else's coat without it feeling right to us. If something is right for us, it resonates. If it is not right, it does not resonate. We, we can will it to do so and even convince ourselves, but it won't pass the test of time. Often what seems to resonate in the past ceases. Let me say that again. Often what seems to resonate in the past ceases to do so presently, which is why so many have turned to the superficial and seductive images of secular society. But if something truly resonates within us, it is right for us, at least for now. And tomorrow will answer for tomorrow. Thus, it is not the guilt or fear that we let go. It, thus, it is not with guilt or fear that we let go of yesterday's convictions but with honesty about whether or not resonance occurs. We do not choose that. The soul makes our decision for us. So component number one of a mature spirituality is the component of resonance. Okay, take it away, babe. So um, the thing I like about this is, is that, first of all, it's sort of a conclusion that I had come to on my own. It was just nice to hear somebody else kind of give... Um, permission to, to, to think of things this way. But uh, as I've read and studied, the thing that's come to, to me is that all truth seems to be able to check three boxes. It, it has to make sense to my head. It has to uh, jive with what I, my lived experience and what I'm seeing around me. And it also has to feel right. It has to make me feel like my connection to God, self and others is expanding and growing and that there's a freedom and a peace with it. And I think that that's kind of what he's getting at is that there, there's a way to, to intellectually digest something and then to live it out and see if it works and then to see if it feels right in your soul. And if it doesn't meet those kind of criteria, at least for me, those are my criteria. Okay. But if it doesn't meet those criteria, I choose to reject it. Um, and I've mentioned this for example before, but and uh, that, you know, in the church, there's this heavy emphasis on fasting. And for years and years and years, I would fast every first Sunday, like we were supposed to. 
And all that was really happening is, is that I was hungry and grouchy <laughs> and still doing all of the same things on Sunday that I was doing before. It wasn't a meditative day. I still had four kids that needed help with homework and that wanted to play in the backyard. And I was just doing it grumpy. And so one day I think to myself, does fasting make sense intellectually? Yeah, it does. There's probably some reasons why it's healthy. But was it working in my lived experience and was my soul expanding from the first Sunday fast every month? Absolutely not. And yet I kept doing it. And then finally one day I was like, stop it. <laughs> you know, there, there may come a day when maybe when my kids are gone and, and I've got more time to myself that fasting will make sense. But at the time, it just doesn't didn't make sense to me. And one of the things that you mentioned in, in, in your in reading his thing is that sometimes there is a temporal difference for things that make sense and don't make sense. Right. So Ecclesiastes, right, to everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. And so what might have been true when we were newlyweds may not be true when we have kids, but it might become true again. And I don't have to feel bad about saying when I have four young kids at home, fasting made no sense to me. So for me, that was kind of the uh, sort of a, a real easy example that I could wrap my brain around of both testing something to see if it makes sense, but also understanding that different times may have different outcomes. God, there's so many places I want to go with this, Nathan. I think one of the things that comes up for me is it takes maturity in and of itself to challenge one's own paradigm, one's own received paradigm, and have the courage to just let something go. And we have not been well patterned. Our programming is to never let something go if somebody taught it to us before, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like come hell or high water, if you were taught to fast on Fast Sunday, by golly, you do that even against your own desires, better judgment, inner experience. Lived experience. <laughs> like that is something that once again, we are not taught to be spiritually mature, discerning human beings here in this um, in this faith tradition. And it's so important, I think, for us as we evolve and as we grow, if we want, and it, it, regardless of whether where we situate ourselves in and around this faith tradition, that we become profoundly committed to spiritual and psychological growth, which says, I own my spirituality. I own who I want to become in relationship with God, self, and others. And it and the, and the foundational principle, and I love why he puts at the very beginning of this resonance, which is trust yourself. Right. Trust yourself. It was so beautiful. Just another, the other day I was starting, uh, I had combined two of my, my uh, support and processing groups, two groups that had been together. They'd each been going for six months and I combined them so that I could start a new group because I was getting a long wait list. And so it was, it was neat because they were getting to know one another. And I said, okay, everybody's been here for six months. We're getting acquainted as a kind of a, I don't know, icebreaker kind of activity, I guess. I, I wanted them to say, what is the thing that has impacted you the most in the first six months that we've been together doing this, this therapy work, this growth work. And over and over again, guess what everyone said? I mean, there were other things too, but the sort of the the thing that rose to the top that was most pervasive is I can trust myself. I've learned that if it works for me, it's right. If it doesn't work for me, I'm finally getting the confidence to let it go. And then another thing that came up for me as you were sharing your fasting example is, and maybe I'll have you do this because you were kind of one of the participants in this. Nathan's a part of a couple of the groups that I run and maybe tell everybody about, or if you would, Nathan, 
talk everybody through the activity that I have the folks do. I think it's in about month four or five where I list like a whole big long catalog of, of Mormon doctrines and practices. And it's like an activity of taking on one's personal authority to decide for themselves what resonates and what doesn't. Do you know what I'm talking about? You remember this? Yeah. So we're, we just make three categories of things that we either have accepted, although they might be in modified forms. They almost always are modified. Yeah. Yeah. Um, things that we are still kind of working out and things that we just kind of outright reject. So for instance, uh, one of the categories might be, is there a God? And for many people in the group, they have accepted that, although it might be in modified form. Uh, it doesn't have to be a male God. It doesn't have to be a female God. It doesn't have to have a gender. I mean, you know, but there's some higher power. Others have said, I, at this point, don't know if I believe in a higher power or not. And there are some who have said, no, I've rejected that. I, I just don't think there's anything out there controlling the universe. And then we have other topics. Uh, some are some are a lot easier, like, for instance, polygamy. Uh, that did not make anybody's accepted list that I am aware of um, in either of the groups that I've participated in. I think polygamy has universally been in the I reject you as BS list. Uh, but the point is, is that, you know, we, I, mean, I think you gave us a list of like 20 or 25 topics and everybody had a chance to write it down and kind of decide, yeah, I, I, I'm okay with this in a modified form. Uh, I'm working through it and it's okay. And I don't know where it's going to land or I have already worked through it. And I do not accept this as a, as a holy principle. And the foundation of this activity is so beautiful because I say to everybody, this is based on what resonates with you. We're not taking a vote. Nobody has to agree with you. Right. And you might even actually change your mind tomorrow. And it's been so beautiful for people to almost like with fear and trembling, share with the rest of their, their comrades, their own evolving theology that resonates deeply within themselves, that represents how they experience the mystery of God and faith on their own terms. And it's been so fun to watch people look at me and go, I, am I allowed to do this? Mm -hmm. Because once again, we have been so incredibly patterned to receive theology as if we have no participation or no right to participation in it. And what a mature spirituality is actually saying, we have every right because it's ours. We own the mystery. We own the ability to be able to discern for ourselves how we are in connection with ourselves, with others, and with God, and to have the confidence and courage to challenge and test and, and feel from deep within what works and what does not, and trust ourselves. And one last point before, I know that was a lot to just say about point number one, but one last thing that I want to just highlight from a moment is that once again, uh, we have not been conditioned to be confident in ourselves in this way, um, so much so that sometimes if something doesn't resonate within us, we are told that we just need to keep doing more of it as if somehow or other it will begin to resonate or there's something wrong with us if we are not able to receive something that has been codified in a way that doesn't work for us. And what we talk about or what I believe is that that is absolutely not the truth, is that we can begin to trust ourselves. Anything else before we move to number two? No. Okay, so component number one of a mature spirituality is the concept of resonance. Component number two is numinous 
Numinosity, <laughs> I think is what the root actually Numinosity. I don't know. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, here we go. Second, I'm now going to begin the quote. Second, a true a true spirituality opens up to the numinous, a word that speaks to something approaching us, soliciting our engagement, not willed by the ego. This means that even traumatic experience can and often is numinous because it hits us with a ra- with the radical mystery of the other and obliges us to reframe our sense of self in the world. Ooh, love this topic. Okay, numinous. Yeah. Nathan Hamaker, go for it. So the way I think of this is that basically for me, what he's saying here is, is that we will start to connect with the divine. We will start to connect with others and ourselves through these spiritual experiences for lack of a better term and that the divine will reach us through these spiritual experiences in a lot of ways sometimes in ways that we don't even expect and he uses the example of of tragedies or disasters or bad things that happen but the reality is is that we know that those things teach us as much or sometimes more about life and about ourselves um than even happy events do. Mm. And so the idea behind this, this numinous concept and the way I see it is we open our eyes and we start looking around us and we start seeing the divine in all of our interactions and in all of our, um, our, our, our nature, nature in, in our work and in our lives and in our children. And, and we start to see the divine there and we seek it. We don't fear it. And we ask ourselves, what is it teaching me? What am I learning? How am I connecting? And I don't need to run it through my bishop or my home teacher or even my spouse. I can learn for myself through that direct contact with the divine. And I can learn to see the divine in everything and in every experience. That's That's beautiful. That's how I see numinosity. I love that. Thank you for that. I think what you said had me thinking about true spirituality or mature spirituality is not something that feels forced, right? It's something that we are drawn towards that causes a different way of seeing the world that is expansive, that opens us up. And something else that really came up for me as you were talking, Nathan, is that it's something that we are, we're, we're moved forward to continue this path. And I can't tell you in the time that I have been working with people in faith expansion, it's both terrifying and absolutely captivating to them. Like they can't turn back. Right. You know, we've often said the phrase or it's, you know, common, it's kind of a common phrase. It's like, I can't unknow what I know now. I can't move backwards. I am compelled forward on this journey, even though what it leads me toward is unknown. It's frightening, but it is in some ways, as we talk about it, it is numinous. It is soliciting our engagement. Mm-hmm. it's not willed by the ego. It's not like, oh, I have to go read this. Like I, I have to go do this thing. I have to fast, you know, in your right. example, it's like something that we are drawn toward and almost attractive to in like a magnetic way. And I 100% have felt that in my voracious reading and study. It's like, I can't get enough of this because it's opening me up to a God and a religion and a way of being in contact with God that is, it's, it's, confounding me but the mystery of it is so big and beautiful and nothing like what i had experienced in so many of my early years in orthodoxy where i quite frankly as i as i look back and reflect 
I was kind of slowly wilting away in boredom. Yeah. There was nothing numinous about my early faith education. Right. It was very much willed by the ego. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I've been the same way. I, I think that um, the, the more I, people I've met in this space with us, the more I see people who are reading a lot. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're drawn and they're reading the Quran and they're reading, um, you know, Buddhism and they're reading Hinduism. Um, I've even actually just recently got into um, some of the great courses on Jesus and on space and, and the planets, because once you start to see God in everything, mm. it's like learning about Neptune is just as important as reading the Book of Mormon to me, because God is in everything. Mm. And, and I see this in a, in a different way. And, and the other thing I was going to mention is that for, for many, many months now, maybe even years, um, I probably pray in my own, like kind of a personal prayer, um, you know, for something maybe like twice a month. And maybe it has to do with something, you know, my kids, but every day I do pray this. I just say, I want to see what you see today. Help me to see people and situations the way that the divine sees them, because I don't need a certain outcome anymore. I just want to learn from what I experienced that day. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's just like a different way of thinking. I'm not popping up in the Book of Mormon to read my 15 minutes. I'm just asking the divine, help me to see what you see, because I want to learn to see this world the way you see it. And it changes everything in your perspective. Mm, that's really beautiful. Wow. I love that. It's a, it's a, so it, what I, what to me is helping me see is that once again, mature spirituality is becomes a passion project. It becomes something that we don't do because we have to, we do it because we are deeply attracted to it and drawn towards it. And so I think those of us who are in faith expansion probably sometimes feel so profoundly misunderstood because we sometimes are experienced as departing from or falling away. And it's like, oh no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> I've never been more deeply engaged in my relationship with the divine now than I've been in my entire life. I mean, exactly. I might've been more compliant in like, okay, doing whatever, my 30 minutes of whatever, Book of Mormon study. Let's just say that for an example. I might've done that and I was compliant. And I'm not saying that people can't have profound experiences with the Book of Mormon. That's not what, this, that's not what I'm talking about here. But what I am saying is that if it's something that is, we're attracted to, we can't get enough of it. We don't do it until the, the timer goes off. Mm -hmm. We do it because it draws us in. And that is the principle of, of numinosity. Let's move on to point number three of a mature spirituality. And it's this, he says, I'm going to move into a quote. Hollis says, third, mature spirituality opens us to mystery, which means certainty is a luxury of the naive, the frightened and the obtuse. I almost feel like I want to say that again, because it's so good. So I'm just going to say it again. Mature spirituality opens us to mystery, which means certainty is a luxury of the naive, the frightened, and the obtuse. This means that I must live with more uncertainty than is comfortable. And however unsettled I feel, to realize that I have no honest choice but to go on and engage life and death on their terms, not on mine. Oh, yeah. Mic drop. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I just absolutely love about Buddhism. 
Uh, and I wouldn't say that I'm a student of Buddhism, but I've certainly listened to a lot of podcasts and read some books and, and you and I have listened to some stuff together. But one of the things I love about Buddhism is they are just so okay with what is. They don't wake up every morning, you know, the, the, the really devout Buddhist who understands the teachings of Buddha. They don't wake up every day trying to change the world. They wake up every day and say, how am I going to respond to whatever comes? Today may be my last day on earth. Today may be the day I lose my job. And, it, and it's not about fixing the situation. It's just simply about living. In fact, I was just listening this morning to a, a podcast where the guy used an analogy of whitewater kayaking, which I also happen to just love to death. And he's like, once you hit that river, you don't get to choose mm. what's going to come. That's a good point. There are boulders and there are drops and there are things. And if you, if you choose to hit the river, you are choosing to take whatever comes. And your job is not to change the river, but it's to simply go with it. And that's right. I mean, if we choose to wake up and leave our house that day, and we have to choose to take whatever comes. We can't control it. And that's where we lose a lot of our comfort is we like to believe we can control things. If I do X, Y, and Z, I will not get punished by God. I will prosper in the land. And we love that transactional gospel that we were taught when we were kids. And giving up that principle of a transactional gospel and moving into a place of I can just accept whatever comes is scary. And yet at the same time, it's really, really freeing. Yes. Thank you, Nathan. I I love what you're saying. And yeah, I hadn't thought about um, tying in these Buddhist principles, but you could not be more right that they are so good. The spiritual gift of the Buddhists is that idea of surrender and acceptance. And as we recognize that we cannot micromanage the entire universe, uh, there is a freedom that comes. And also, as we recognize that there is uh, no place for uh, certainty in the spiritual life. And I know that is just terrifying for us, and especially because I think in our faith tradition, uh, because we do tend to be nested in um, a highly committed early phase faith development here in the LDS church, uh, our, our, well, I, I would say one of our, our main components um, is that we enjoy feeling certainty. But in the church, we really, really like to, we fancy ourselves um, sort of having the corner on the market on certainty. And therefore, mystery is very, very uncomfortable. And so for those of us who have been, uh, who've spent much of our lives inside of the uh, orthodoxy of the LDS church, uh, the idea of walking into a world of uncertainty and of mystery and of, I don't know what's going to happen next is terrifying. I think it's terrifying for all of us as human beings, but I think when we have been raised in a system that that like explicitly prides itself on anxiety management by way of certainty, it like makes people feel like they're going crazy. And so much of what we do in our work or what I do in my work, uh, working in faith expansion with people and my consulting and in my groups and things like that is just helping people learn how to tolerate that there is beauty in not knowing that there's beauty in mystery that there's beauty in the process and that you are in fact on a journey i was just this week reading uh the meditations of marcus aurelius and uh one of the things that he really uh emphasizes is that this idea that the obstacle is the way mm. and that because we are given all sorts of obstacles those are the ways that we learn 
what it means to be divine. Those are the ways that we're able to become who we are. And yet at the same time, that is not what we are taught. We are taught, do these seven things and you do not have to manage any mystery, any ambiguity. And as long as everybody shows up and behaves the right way in your you know, white heterosexual family system and does all of these things that everything will go according to plan. And of course, we know that this doesn't work out for the vast majority of us. And therefore, there is no kind of tolerance for mystery. And what they're saying here is that a mature spirituality lets go of all of these preconceived notions of what things have to be to embrace something that we cannot know. And that is how we really truly come to know God and ourselves as we grow into uh, you know, our, our greatest potential. Okay. Beautiful. Anything else? Okay. All right. Let's move on to component number four. This is what Hollis says. He says fourth. Well, let me do this. Let's just review really quickly. See, let's the first three components of, of a mature spirituality is number one, resonance. Number two, uh, open to the numinous. Number three is open to mystery. And now number four is this a mature spirituality. I love this one. <laughs> a mature spirituality asks me to grow up. He goes on to say this. We all know that a frightened child and adaptive history makes most of our decisions. We all know that what we all know with what timidity we approach our lives, with what checking in we question our decisions, and what infantilizing wishes for magic drive our imaginations. Growing up, at the least, means that we accept full responsibility for our own lives. We are, all of us, still responsible for meeting our needs, not some magical other, someone who will fix it for us, lift our burdens off of us, explain what it all means, instruct us in what we are supposed to do, and if we are really lucky, take care of us so that we don't have to grow up at all. Okay, so uh, take it away, Nathan. A mature spirituality asks me to grow up. Grow up. So, you know, in some ways, this kind of encapsulates, I think, a lot of the things that we've been talking about, but the idea I think he has behind growing up is, is that we shift the burden of our personal growth away from somebody else and to ourselves. But we've talked about that really uh, resonance and being okay with our own spiritual experiences and being okay with the unknown. I mean, those are all principles leading us to this point, but I think what he's getting at is, is that it, it almost has to be like a conscious decision yep. to say, okay, I am done handing this over to somebody else. So let me give you an example. Not too long ago, you and I were in a meeting with a member of our state presidency. And it was at a time when you had been doing a number of firesides for the youth to help them deal with difficult topics like depression and LGBTQ. Just depression. Or was it just depression? Just anxiety and depression. It was very benign. Okay. Anxiety and depression. And we were talking about how we're losing a lot of our youth. And we're talking about how um, they're, they're leaving the church. There's a two, uh, uh, a suicide rate in our church. That's way too high. Can I, can I, can I say what it was like exactly? Sure. Okay. So it was all it was that I was wanting to do. I might, I want to make this very clear because what I was proposing was very non-controversial and I can totally appreciate that, uh, what I talk about, you know, in, you know, formally to the church is there's some controversial things that was not this, all I wanted to do. And all I had actually been doing up to that point is I was trying to gather the youth with their parents so that they could learn how to have challenging conversations about the concept of and what it feels like to be depressed. Okay. That's it. That's it. 
so anyway, but so so this this state presidency member for for whatever reason had been instructed not to let Valerie do any of these firesides, and I challenged him a little bit and I said, "You know this is a problem, you know, in our stake, in our church, in our country," and then he said the, the most unbelievable thing. He says, "Well, we have a prophet, don't we? Obviously, it's under control." Now, you talk about handing personal responsibility off to the magical other. I don't have to worry about the youth in my state being depressed or suicidal. I don't need to go out and find trained counselors who are competent in this and can come in and help us figure out how to deal with the mental health issues in the state because I can hand the responsibility off to our prophet who hasn't set foot in this stake that I know of. And he, the magical prophet, will make everything better. So when I think of growing up, I think of statements like that. A grown-up would say, yeah, this is a problem. And maybe we do have a prophet who's giving us some general guidance. But in this stake, I will take personal responsibility as long as I'm in the stake presidency to see that this gets fixed. He didn't say that. He said, no, no, let's hand it off to the prophet over there in Salt Lake City. So to me, that was a perfect example of what it looks to like to grow up, Valerie offering to come in and address a need. And somebody who's not grown up yet saying, not necessary. And I think what you're describing, that's a great example, Nathan. I think sometimes it's challenging to, in fact, grow up. It's easier to just let other people deal with it or to hope that if I don't deal with it, somebody else will. Or somebody else will tell me when it's time to. Right. When I hear from the prophet to, to, that to it's deal with time this. to deal with this, then I will deal with it. Yes. And so exactly what Hollis says is we want someone else to uh, fix it, lift our burdens off us, explain what it all means, tell us what to do. And if we're really lucky, take care of everything so that we don't have to grow up at all. And I think that, um, you know, God bless them. Our church does <laughs> want to take on the role of the magical other. It's, it, it likes the dependency model. And again, I think this is not just unique to our church. I think churches tend to want to stay relevant to their membership. And therefore what they do is they create a dependency model, which prevents people from in fact growing up. And I think probably the fear is that if you grow up, then you won't need us anymore. And then what do we do? What they don't recognize is that uh, true spirituality is a, is a concept where people may still choose into institutional participation because they want the community and they want to mentor others on the journey. They don't have to keep a, a group of people underdeveloped to keep themselves relevant. As a matter of fact, they bond themselves to those um, in their community if they trust them and allow them, in fact, to grow up. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky topic because sometimes it's like we have to grow up uh, in the face of a lot of uh, invalidation that growing up is the right thing to do in religious community. Mm -hmm. Okay, last but not least, our number five reason or number five way that we know that we're in a mature spirituality is this. And this is actually kind of a, a compilation of all of the things together with uh, how this will look on the ground. So he says this, fifth, our beliefs and practices are to be measured not by whatever solipsistic or seductive certainties they offer us, but whether 
Our spirituality opens us to mystery, deepens our engagement with the unfolding of our journey, requires us to grow up, requires us to live without certainty, and yet also helps us conduct a daily life driven by values. Yeah. So to me, what he's getting at here is he's saying, okay, when we recognize that we can choose for ourselves how our spirituality will look and how we develop and what our way of connecting with God's self and others looks like, in actuality, it will still play out as sort of a moral practice. It's almost going to start to look like a religion again, <laughs> because we're going to guide ourselves by principles. Now, they're principles we've developed for ourselves, and they're principles that we have chosen for ourselves and that feel right to us, but it might actually start to look a little bit like a religion again. And so what he's saying is, is that as we do this, as we start to live our lives with these, with this kind of new open eyes, we will have a morality, but we always need to go back and check it against these principles. Am I comfortable with the unknown? Am I looking for the spirituality around me? Is what I'm doing still resonating with my soul? Or do I need to change something? Am I, am I still adopting something I don't feel comfortable with? Or has something inside of me changed and I'm ready to move to something different? So it's kind of like a, hey, always check in with yourself because now that you're exercising this in your daily life, don't let it become a routine again. Don't let it turn into just the next form of our religious practice. Mm, I really like that. That's how I interpreted that. Yeah, thank you. I think what I was thinking about is that as we have a mature spirituality, it's alive, it's growing, it's evolving, it's it's an experience that we are each and every day feeling authentic with, and in so doing, we are in fact living a life of value. And I think the thing that, um, the other thing that I'm thinking about as I'm processing and pondering your words, Nathan, is that a mature spirituality creates within us a deepening relationship with ourselves as children of God. I mean, that in, in and of itself is, is the whole foundation of what spirituality is, is we, we connect with and relate to this mystery and we become more embodied by this thing. And so the natural product of that is going to be more love. It's going to be living a very authentic life driven and based in the values that we are incorporating into ourselves because we are in authentic connection with the mystery of the divine. And, and so we can know that and we can have, we can be validated in our own maturing spirituality. If we feel like we are consistently aligning ourselves with that, which brings us light, truth, and love to those around us. As we close, or as I close, I guess, I wanted to read to you a closing quote by Carl Jung himself that uh, I just think is beautiful. He says this, no one can know what the ultimate things are. We must take them as we experience them. And if such experience helps make life healthier, more beautiful, more complete, and more satisfactory to yourself and to those you love, you may safely say, this was the grace of God. Any thoughts on that as I close, Nate? I think he's summarizing what you and I have said, that 
it's if something feels more connecting if, if mm. it connects us to god self and others if it increases our love for god self and others then we know that it will feel right we know that it makes sense to us it will live out as a more peaceful existence and that is the evidence that it is from the divine mm. and, and so carl has summarized for us what what you and i have been trying to say all along Hold it up against love, hold it up against the peace that it brings you, and don't be afraid of the unknown. Thank you for that. I Yes, that's kind of how I want to close too, is just to invite us all to, to consistently strive to have more confidence in ourselves, to believe that we can, in fact, be the personal authorities of our own spiritual journey, and that we can trust ourselves to know the path that is right and good for us and that we can trust these processes inside of us that draw us toward light and truth and light and that we can help each other have that confidence to do this thing which is very uh radical and not something that many of us have been raised to have confidence in knowing how to do okay i think we're out of time now so grateful for those of you who hung in there with us as we were uh really breaking down uh, one of my very favorite thinkers. Um, and if I was going to call him a theologian, I don't think he would claim himself to be a theologian, but I sort of do. I think he, uh, anyways, one of the most amazing thinkers out there in terms of helping me in my faith journey. If you want to read this book, Exa uh, Living an Examined Life, it will be linked in the bio. And also there will be some information on how to purchase that on my Instagram and Facebook posts. And I'm so grateful for all of you who are here with me on this journey. If you want to join one of my online community uh, groups, or if you want to jump into one of my courses, jump over to latterdaystruggles.com. And also if you want uh, a one-off, or I sometimes do a handful of um, individual one-on-one -on -one consults with individuals who are wanting some specific time with me, I am willing to do that. You can find uh, my schedule on latterdaystruggles.com. Or if you want some more ongoing work with one of the people on my team, same place, latterdaystruggles.com. Thanks for being with us, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.